I'm very excited to talk to Michael Hartney this morning at Boston College and maybe the Manhattan Institute. You apparently wear several hats, but um, we're going to talk a little bit about school boards. But one thing I want to say, like right up front, is I'm surprised at the number of people this year in particular who've had this epiphany around what school boards do. Like all of a sudden people are like, school boards pick curriculum? Yeah, what do you think they do when they meet once a month? You know what I mean? Oh, the school board does that? And now people are getting really agitated about school boards in a way that, quite frankly, doesn't really happen, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, oftentimes people get enamored with change and uh, forget that most public policymaking uh, occurs uh, when change doesn't happen and things are quiet. And it oftentimes takes these flashpoint moments to draw attention to something. And the pandemic in many ways was that event where um, real eminent political scientist, uh, James Q. Wilson, some of our listeners may know about, wrote a phenomenal book. Uh, Don't be scared. The title's bureaucracy. But it was really a great book back in the late 80s, early 90s. And he pointed out that schools are what he called coping organizations, They're bureaucracies where most of the time the public doesn't really have a window into the classroom, so they can't see what the organizations are doing, and it's very hard to evaluate how they're performing. But because of the pandemic, you suddenly had parents, consumers of education, getting a direct window oftentimes right into the classroom, and that really changed the dynamics this year, especially uh, as there's a great column my friend Rick Hess at AEI Um, penned recently for the dispatch where he said, look, most of the time parents are, they're happy if the trains are running on time, somebody's showing up to pick up their kids. And that was not this past year. That's exactly right. I think we, you know, um, I was chatting with you before the podcast about the fact that I did my dissertation on Massachusetts charter schools. And one of the communities that got one of the first charter schools in Massachusetts and didn't see it coming, I remember speaking to their superintendent. He said, you know, we never have anyone attend a school board meeting up here. And when the charter school passed, we had to find a new location because so many people showed up because they were so upset, right? So now, and even Tuesday, lots of folks are talking about the Virginia governor election, but I just read that triple the number of school board recall elections happened last Tuesday than normal, right? So but um, but what I hear in talking about charter schools and, and other forms of school choice is, you know, you get a lot of pushback from those quote unquote education establishment because they don't have democratically elected boards, which means they aren't responsible to the public. And every time I hear that and when I've heard that for decades, I'm like, oh, please, who votes in school board elections? Right. Yeah. As though they're democratically elected, the whole community comes together and selects these folks. But how does it really work? Yeah, democracy is a very fluid concept. You know, I I would argue in many ways that the most uh, small d democratic exercise we've seen in education actually happened in Washington, D.C. when, for what it's worth, I don't think it was necessarily a good outcome, but when Michelle Rhee was summarily dispatched from the district, that was a system that was mayoral control. But because everybody knew that the mayor was responsible for appointing her, if you liked her, you could have voted for the mayor's reelection. If you didn't like her, all you had to do was vote against the mayor. And that's what they did. And to me, that's a lot more democratic than holding staggered school board elections at odd times of the year when five or 10 percent of an unrepresentative group of the public turns out. 
Yeah, my experience has been when my three kids went through public schools is, you know, you'd have a, a fairly and forgive me, it's Friday, maybe I'm just being cranky, but this is what I recall. But you'd have a, a pretty active PTA member and then someone would say, hey, you should run for the school board. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a very closed environment of who was running and everybody knew each other and there was no like, you know, uh, people who really wanted to hold the schools accountable are going to come in and run for school board. So, but what 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 we're getting at is this idea that uh, a while ago, I would like you to give me facts here, but it was determined that the the way to get people to really pay attention and investigate the people running for school board is to have the elections when they're not voting for anything else. Essentially, is that right? Um, I actually argue the opposite. I, my argument, no, that was the, the reasoning behind doing these offsite. Oh, 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 originally. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The, the progressives, I mean, this is a hundred years ago and yeah. and yeah, more or less. And, and, and they said, look, um, keep in mind back then the big issue was patronage politics. So to get your job sure. as a principal or as a teacher, you had to know someone, you had to work for the right political party. So, you know, we made a good decision to move away from that. But one of the consequences was we took party labels uh, off of school board members who were running. And, you know, I think there are pros and cons to that, but we also segregated when these elections were held so that you got light turnout. And it, it's not just light turnout, like light turnout wouldn't be a problem if the people turning out were representative of the people who are not turning out, but exactly. we know that's not true. We know school employees are far more likely to vote uh, when these elections are held at odd times of the year. And your typical parent who's busy, yeah, they'll turn out in a presidential election year, but they're not necessarily gonna turn out if you're holding the school board election in the spring of an odd year. So that's what happens. A lot of school board elections, and that's what happened in, in Missouri. They have them at a time when you're not voting for president, you're not voting for Senate, you're just going in for the most part to vote for school board and some very other localized, some other very localized issues. And your re research has shown that it might be better, you might get a better result if you actually did vote for school board at the same time you vote in the big elections. Yes. So I certainly think you'll get a more democratic result. And I, I do want to emphasize one nice thing about the proposal um, that we put forward in the issue brief is that it's really not a right or left issue. In fact, I was kind of chuckling a few minutes after the Manhattan Institute released the report. You had Chris Hayes of MSNBC tweeting out, this is an idea from a conservative think tank that I like because liberals <laughs> tend to be attracted to the idea of increasing voter turnout. And in sure. fact, we show we show in the paper that turnout, uh, you can increase turnout more from moving all local elections to November of even years than every single provision of HR1 combined. So if you really cared about turnout, this would be what you were focused on. Uh, and conservatives like it because it is the case that there are lots of communities where conservative views are underrepresented on school boards because when held at odd times of the year, it's the school employee vote that's coming out more than uh, than say the median right. parent in the district. The, the folks who have a vested interest, right? I should yes. say before you talk more, you have an issue brief called Revitalizing Local Democracy, the case for on-cycle local elections. It was uh, put out by the Manhattan Institute just a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago. Um, it's fantastic. It's fascinating. What I really like about it is we've done some work at the Show Me Institute in Missouri or certainly thought about it. Like you can measure voter turnout. You can say, okay, it's five to 10% in these off cycles and it might be 45 to 50% when you do it with the other big elections. But what I really like about your work is you look at, uh, even though it is only five to 10%, as you just said, how well the, those voters reflect the communities and what you find. 
Yeah. So again, things for both sides here to really latch onto and like for um, we cite research in political science, for example, that shows that in very racially uh, in places that have more non-white voters, for example, they're more likely those non-white voters to turn out. And so you sometimes get more descriptive representation, more uh, black and Latino school board members when you hold elections on cycle. Uh, but we also found that, say, for charter school advocates uh, looking in California, um, we um, in one of my studies, I surveyed school board members out in California and asked them whether they supported charter schools. And if local democracy and education is working, what we would hope for is that those local school board members, their views on charter schools reflect the views of the people they're representing on school choice. Right. And what we found was that they did but only in California districts that had elected their school boards on cycle in these November even year elections. When board members were elected at odd times of the year, they very rarely shared the same views as their constituents on issues like school choice. So it really matters for the actual substance of the policies that are being proposed by boards. They diverge from their communities yeah. when they're not being elected at a time of the year where obviously more voters means more accountability. So if I'm being cynical and I and I am, you know, you have an off cycle election, you get the people from within the system to vote for and elect the people that will perpetuate the things they like in the system. Right. And then you don't really have any opportunity for change. You don't have any opportunity to bring somebody in who uh, is going to go against the grain, who is going to say, you know, I don't want to go to a four day school week, you know, like whatever the thing is. You know, I don't I think the teacher should work longer. That is not going to be presented because you have these very just with within the system elections. And then in my cynical side, then they fall back and say, we're democratically elected. And they I feel like they um, put themselves up with big D democracy, you know, because they're democratically elected. And you kind of you can't really have it both ways. No. And in some ways, it's even worse than that. So in the in the brief uh, we, we, um, I discuss a paper that was published uh, a couple of years ago by a political scientist at NYU, and she asked a really interesting question, which was, um, does the time of the school board election influence the degree to which voters punish or reward incumbent school board members for how well they've done as school board members? And so in the paper, um, what is looked at is the test score improvement of a district. And so you would think like in national politics, right? We talk about how, uh, you know, presidents should be rewarded or defeated, you know, rewarded right. or defeated based on whether the economy improved under their tenure. Well, that's tenuous, but a school board member, we would hope uh, an incumbent is evaluated based on whether kids are learning something. And right. what she found was fascinating in districts that hold school board elections in presidential of even years, uh, if you're an incumbent running and the turnout is high, and test scores don't improve, incumbents pay a price for that. Wow. But when dis when elections were not held in high turnout uh, presidential election years, she finds that whoever was showing up to vote, and obviously we don't know the exact details of who it was, but they were not uh, um, voting for the incumbent based on whether the kids were learning in the district. <laughs> so, that's so interesting. I mean, that to you me know, is important. That's, a, that's fascinating. And I, I know that we have some districts in Missouri uh, where the school board uh, in case people don't know, they hire the superintendent, right? So we have superintendents that stay for years and years and years and years, even though school performance not only does it not go up, it goes down. So it seems counterintuitive that they keep renewing contracts with superintendents when performance isn't improving. And then they don't 
the boards don't get voted out. So like, how do you change that situation if you don't get more people involved in who's serving on that board? Now, do you think that after all of the, you know, the upset of this past year, Missouri, we've had the school board meetings with the parents, you know, getting thrown out and getting upset and all that. Do you think you're going to see more involvement in school boards, like who's running and who and who votes? Uh, I hate to be a pessimist, but I think, right. that <laughs> I think that um, I think some of these governance reforms can matter. So I'm encouraged, uh, for example, by the fact that I, I rarely feel like I say this, but I'm encouraged with a law that was passed in California a few years ago <laughs> that is now uh, moving all of the local school board elections to be in, um, concurrent with uh, oh, federal elections. So, um, and, and that should make a difference. Um, you know, in, in data that I looked at in California, um, uh, teacher union endorsed candidates for the school board um, do significantly better in, in oddly timed elections. Uh, they still do They still do well in all elections, but they yeah. do substantially better in oddly timed elections. So there may be some more balance that comes about. But in terms of your question about sort of carrying the momentum of, wow, we realize school boards are important. Um, the reason I'm a pessimist is that, you know, it's, I'm sympathetic to parents. Uh, they're busy. Their primary job is not to attend school board meetings, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's asking a lot of them to be more than activists that get involved when a big issue gets put out there. And um, and I don't begrudge school employees the right to get involved. I mean, we all want to have For a sure. voice with our employer. But on the other hand, it's just very hard to get balance between the the interests of consumers of education, of parents and families, and, and the producers, the employees of education, because the producers have a never-ending permanent incentive to show up for those meetings, of course. whereas parents just, I mean, it's asking a lot. It is. It, it's not a full-time job for them. Yeah. So um, your policy recommendation, obviously, is to move from off-cycle to on-cycle. Do you see that? I know California, but do you see it happening other places? Yeah, it's getting more traction. Certainly, I can put it this way. The trend is not toward moving any more elections off-cycle, so well, that, which yeah. is good. I think this can help at the margins. Um, I also think uh, it's important for, for listeners to, because frequently people will say, well, there's always a downside uh, to shifting elections. And so people will say, isn't this going to lead to sort of more nationalization of local elections? Never. Are people yeah. going to be more partisan? Are you going to end up with ignoramuses who come out to the polls uh, in even your elections who just sort of market like a Christmas tree they don't know who's running for school. Definitely have heard and, that one. <laughs> uh, and I address all of that in the report. And uh, and there's really very little to no evidence uh, that the voters who turn out are super knowledgeable in off-cycle elections compared right. to the ones in on-cycle elections. So none of those concerns really stand up. I, I do think this also brings us somewhat to the issue of school choice um, because, you know, improve. I think any improvements are a good thing. Uh, but governance reforms within the traditional system will only probably move the ball so far. And if you really want to have parents become a viable political constituency, probably the best way to do that is to give them something tangible in the way that senior citizens are a tangible constituency for Social Security. Yeah, so yeah, when yeah. parents have a choice, that is one mechanism that kind of gives them a, something they care about that they'll show up to defend. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting going to the Virginia governor's election. I mean, I'm hearing all different sorts of things, and I'm not saying it was all education related, but some folks are saying it was very much education related. But that's a kitchen table issue. You know what I mean? It's normally been something that gets moms. They care a lot. 
but it got elevated to um, this like statewide issue because parents felt they weren't being heard. And I wonder if that will improve the you know democratic involvement in the school systems. And I wonder if it will make other legislators take note that parents can be a viable you know interest group. Yeah, Virginia is a very fascinating place to study how this is all playing out. Uh, it's still pretty early, so I, I don't have any definitive conclusions, but I've, I've started to look into the data, um, crunching the numbers on where uh, Glenn Youngkin overperformed uh, Donald Trump's performance in 2020, or conversely, where um, Terry McAuliffe did worse than Joe Biden. Uh, and a couple of patterns have already sort of started to stand out. Um, uh, Jay Green of the of the Heritage uh, Foundation recently put out a big report on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion officers spending on DEI in districts. And I uh, last I spent last night actually gathering information on that for all of Virginia school districts to sort of wow. see whether there was a relationship between you know spending on equity initiatives and uh, how voters went in the election. And I actually didn't find much evidence uh, of a connection. But what what does appear to be uh, emerging is I'm finding some soft evidence that districts that were closed and only had virtual instruction last year, or conversely, places that had in-person learning, that that seems to be related to some of the over or underperformance from the candidates, suggesting that, yes, education issues may have loomed large, but like you say, more of the kitchen table sort of thing, like, I'm frustrated with the education bureaucracy. Why has my kid been Zooming for nearly a year when I can look across the state line and see that's not happening somewhere else? So a little early to be definitive, but I think that's more likely what was happening. I think you're right. I think I saw anger, which I think is interesting across the socioeconomic spectrum. And like in the beginning, when the schools closed, maybe the fall of 2021, uh, 2020, when the schools were supposed to reopen, I talked to parents from, you know, very expensive school districts who own very nice homes. And they're like, I don't want my child learning virtually. I was like, too bad. This is what it feels like when you get one choice, right? And they were very mad. And I know parents pulled their kids off for private schools and some homeschooled, which is not a good solution for every family, right? So I think the level of frustration with that, and then this year, just before the election, you know, kids are quarantining again and they're there for a couple of days and then they have to come home for a few days. And that's got to be very frustrating if you're trying to have a job and do childcare and that type of thing. My kids are out of school, thank goodness, but that's got to be very hard to deal with too. And I think that's driving a lot of the, of the, um, of the activation of parents as an interest group. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think that it really underscores uh, the pandemic helps highlight how people can talk about how traditional public education provides this sort of universal good for everybody and it works for everybody. And what this really reveals is that whoever holds a majority of power on the school board and then makes a determination about how learning will be delivered for a year during a pandemic, it's he who has the most votes wins. And if what's good for your kid and you're in the minority, or even if you're 20%, 30%, you're going to have to go along with that unless you, as some of my friends did, pulled their kids out and put them in parochial schools. But if those options are A, not affordable for you or B, not located where you are, you kind of just have to take what the you know public sector organization in your community will give you. Yeah. And even with, in non-pandemic times, when people say they are very like one issue that comes up regularly that gets parents very upset is redistricting where you have 
they take the elementary schools and they redraw the lines, right? So you have a child who's in second grade at their school they love and they're a pirate and they're going to go over here and they're going to be a tiger and they don't want, like redistricting brings parents out in a way that I always find to be interesting. But, um, and then they say, if you don't like it, elect a new school board. Well, that like solution to this immediate problem, I think is where parents just get frustrated, you know, and like, oh, okay. So then the next election, we'll look for someone who promises not to redistrict, but my second grader is still going to change schools and lose the environment that they got used to or whatever. So I just think that this recourse of like, well, elect a different school board, that's parents get very frustrated with that response. Yeah, it's it's even tougher in some ways to hold school board members accountable than it is our national lawmakers, because if yeah. you think about it, every two years, the public gets to send a message uh, to national leaders. They can they can literally change uh, the Congress. Yeah. Right. And so the idea of, quote, throw the bums out, you know, like elections like we saw in, say, 1994 that that shock the country. You can do right. that. Um, but in a lot of these sort of backwater school districts, they stagger the elections, they hold them at odd times of the year. And when you do that, it means that good luck, you're going to have to basically spend four years of a coordinated effort That's right. uh, among parents and keep your eye on the ball. That's very unlikely to happen. Uh, and you're going unless, against the establishment, the union leadership, and you're going against the prince. I mean, like it's, yeah. Unless I remember that feeling of just being like, forget it. <laughs> right. And, and that's why we've seen probably a lot more of these recalls. And, and that's interesting, too, because typically with recall elections, um, they're off. They're usually a product of fiscal malfeasance or some personal scandal. Right. Um, but this year, we actually saw that a lot of the recalls were tied to disagreements over substantive policy things, whether COVID or the content yeah. of curricula and so on. So I'm just going to put you on the spot and ask for your opinion. No, nothing other than opinion. The whole National School Boards Association letter. Did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that's so interesting to me uh, as a scholar of interest groups is I didn't realize, I mean, I guess I knew it, but I never put the dots together that these are interest groups that is school boards associations and they're, and they're important interest groups in state politics, right? They Absolutely. go and lobby on issues. They're Absolutely. funded by, they're funded by taxpayer dollars. I, I mean, if you let that sink in for me, I mean, like that's wait, how wait, wait, explain to me how they're funded. Yeah. They're funded by taxpayer dollars because Local school districts um, uh, become a school board decides we're going to be a member of our state school oh. boards association. And it's obviously not the private money of the individual school board members that are shelling out for Getting that. Membership. Fees, yeah. It's coming from the taxpayer. I mean, and I don't mean to be uh, I'm, I want to be clear. This is this happens in other arenas, too. I worked at the National Governors Association in Washington, yeah. D.C. I mean, state, it's not governors individually aren't paying those membership dues, but it sort of highlights the degree to which establishment interests. They're not organic interests that are funded by the dues of members out of their own pocket because right. every year I want, I believe in the Sierra Club, I believe in the right, 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 right. Uh, NRA, they're very closely tied to us. And so when they took a position that bothered a lot of people, it really highlighted, well, wait a minute. And then you saw in about half the states, I think Max Eden's been doing some great work tracking yeah. this stuff. A lot of backing off. So, you know, Missouri, group pulled, Missouri School Board Association pulled out. But I will tell you, I go down to Jefferson City to give testimony on education bills. And if it involves school choice, the three who show up who are who are 
seem to be well-funded lobbyists are the Missouri School Board Association, Missouri Superintendents Association, and the teacher union leadership. And those three work together and, and it's almost impossible like to work against that group, the School Board Association in particular. And what's interesting, not to get off, off track on this, but in the Midwest, many of the states have a large number of very small districts. So in Missouri, we have 520 districts. Massachusetts is what, 100 and some? Yeah, so we have. So you take the number of school boards and multiply that times a factor of five. So we just literally, because people say, why is it so hard to make something happen? I'm like, we literally have thousands of school board members for 900,000 kids. So we, you know, Illinois has got a thousand districts. So you just multiply the number of superintendents, the number of school board members by these factors. And, and it's just, it's a, literally a large group of people. And it's hard to work against that. You know, uh, Florida's got 67 districts. We have 520 and it's just more people and it's just more people to work, uh, to, to work against. And it is really interesting to me with the power they have as an interest group. I did not think about the funding though. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, now you're making me think about the other issue, the size thing, because I oftentimes like to say that American education is has the worst of both worlds. We're we're centralized in some ways, but we're also decentralized in other ways. And so um, and what I mean by that is if you look at um, not to say that there weren't teachers unions in other countries fighting um, against school reopenings uh, yeah. or taking a more cautious approach, however, one looks at that issue. But I, um, but what you saw here is all of these labor um, agreements about reopening schools had to be hashed out in tiny districts all over the country. Absolutely. And that's like a not, whereas I think, uh, not that I'm saying I want to be a corporatist set up like some of the European countries, but it has its virtues in that it promotes responsibility because the, you have one education secretary who sits down with one union leader and the media covers it and people need to act like adults and come to an agreement. Whereas here, you're counting on people following these little arguments over 10,000 districts across the country. And that's not yeah. going to happen. It, so yeah. I think it exacerbates bad behavior in some ways. I had a, a researcher from London call me and ask me what the high school graduation requirements are in the United States. And I said, well, there's 50 sets of them. You know what I mean? It's like, we don't have one. We have 50 sets of them. So you're going to have to keep digging. I can't give you that answer. Well, it was super interesting to talk to you. I mean, I would love to see Missouri move towards on-cycle elections. I think it would help, as particularly given the, given the number of school board members we have, to just bring it more into the open and, and get more participation. And it's um, I love seeing evidence for why it's a better solution versus people's just kind of opinions on it. But, you know, it is, it is based on your research a fact that you will get school boards that better reflect the communities. And it costs yes. less. It costs yeah. less. Localities don't have to spend money holding their own standalone elections if they're piggybacking on a federal election. So what's not to love? It's cheaper and more people are voting. I mean, there are a few winners in American politics, but that That's seems it. like this an obvious one. one to me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. And um, I would appreciate you taking the time to join our podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.